Jairo Lugo Cando has many stories to tell, and he certainly shares some of those in this episode of El Café Latinx. One of them really stuck with me. Among many other things, Jairo is editor of a journal, and he said that one of his proudest accomplishments editing this journal is when he helped publish the very first paper about media and communication in Haiti written by a professor who's in Haiti, person who, to make ends meet, has to drive a taxi during the day and then teach at night. Which makes me think, do we really understand the labor conditions of the people working in academia in Latin America or in the global South more generally? Do we acknowledge all the sacrifices that they go through in order to produce knowledge? About this and many other super interesting stories, we talked with Jairo Lugocando in this episode of El Café Latinx. What's the experience of being a Latinx scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalifa Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx communication across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. We have a great speaker today, Jairo Lugo Ocando, from Maracaibo, Venezuela, currently in Doha, Qatar. He is professor in residence and director of executive education and graduate education at Northwestern University in Qatar. Before, he was on the faculty at several universities in the UK, most recently at the University of Leeds. He's also held visiting positions at a number of universities in the US, Latin America, and Asia, including Columbia in New York, Andres Bello in Venezuela, and National University of Singapore. He's the author of nine books. His most recent one is Foreign Aid and Journalism in the Global South, A Mouthpiece for Truth. And his work has been funded by numerous agencies, totaling more than a million dollars in external funding. Jairo, welcome to El Café Latinx. It's truly a pleasure to have you here. The pleasure is all mine, Pablo. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure, my friend. So let me ask you, how did it all begin? You know, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor and to live in Doha, Qatar today? <laughs> well, I, I, it was really, it wasn't really my own making as much as external circumstances. I was working as a journalist in Venezuela, and in 1998, in 1998 as everybody knows, uh, Hugo Chavez wins the elections. And um, I had had issues with governments in the past. We, we created actually the first newspaper, online newspaper in Venezuela called Diario del Lago. That was in 1994, 95. Uh, so we had had problems with the previous government, uh, Caldera. Uh, Rafael Caldera. And then when the new government came into power, we knew that we were going to have 
uh, we, we, we knew we were going to have problems. You know, not, not, we had created a new newspaper, print newspaper called La Verdad, which still exists. It's in Maracaibo. I was the uh, chief news editor of, the, of La Verdad. And, um, and uh, Chavez wins in 1999. And we knew uh, the, the, the person who would become in that time his vice president, Jose Vicente Rangel, uh, was a very good friend of my family and says, you know, said to my family that things with, with journalists will get difficult. And that was his exact words. Uh, and they did. Uh, so I talked to my then wife and saying, let's, let's do, a, let's go out, let's do a master's or something. And in uh, 1999, in uh, August 1999, I left to Lancaster University to do a master's. And my idea was never to stay in the UK or to uh, basically um, uh, to, to, to become an academic. It was not in the radar. I was going to go back into journalism, which was the profession I, I loved and I did and I cherished. And um, I just, um, I just uh, um, was doing my master's when uh, a professor, uh, Martin Edmonds, uh, who, who died this year, by the way, um, rest in peace, um, in the Department of Politics in Lancaster says, have you thought of doing a, a PhD? And I said, no, and I don't really have the money. I was with a scholarship. I didn't really have, I mean, you you know, I didn't, I, I got a good salary in Venezuela, but not a salary to pay a, a, a master's degree in Europe in the United States. So he says, because a friend of mine is doing a, once a good candidate, and I think you could, you can win the project. Can you put a project together? And I say, yeah, I can do that. And I wrote a project. He liked the way I wrote. And I didn't think that my English was particularly good in that time. And that's, I ended up in Sussex and with under um, the late uh, Alan Coulson to look at. And, and it, was a do, it was a very interesting PhD because it was half in the Department of Media Studies in Sussex and half in the Institute for Development Studies, which is a well-known development. So I, I did my master's in ICTs and development. And which is an area I didn't expect, but that was the project that was available. You know, it's it's not what you want to research. Is if you're coming from the global south, it's what where, where's the money? <laughs> and uh, so I did my my PhD, and during the time I was doing PhD, I got my first job, um, with um, a college of uh, Greenwich University in London. And from there, I moved to uh, Liverpool, to Liverpool, your Moors, uh, and then I went to Scotland, where by that time uh, people started to know me, and in in uh, really my academic career, really, really, although I started before, really started in Sterling. I, I was there under the tutelage of well, a great scholar and great friend who I owe, practically I owe my career to, to him, is Philip Schlesinger. And uh, Philip um, was the, the, the head of the Sterling Media Research Institute in that time. Today he's in, in Glasgow. And um, he basically sat well with me and says, I know that you're a journalist and I know you're not used to write academic papers. And I don't know, and I know you're not, you don't know how to research um, in, in the way. I have done my PhD, so let me, I mean, the PhD under Alan was, was great, but I, I you, I never had this type of, of really um, focus that he gave me in the career. And that's where I really started. I, this, I think, this is why I lasted in, in Sterling for so long, 12 years I did there. I, we created the Department of, of Journalism. We set up uh, uh, the first master's in financial journalism ever in the UK. Uh, then a master's in, in media management in Vietnam. 
And then from there, I went to um, Sheffield, where I st stayed five years at the University of Sheffield, the Department of Journalism. And finally, I was offered a job in, uh, in uh, Leeds. And it was a great job in Leeds. And then uh, Northwestern just showed up in the map and, uh, and they invited me to come here. And very grateful in with this challenge here of setting, you know, the graduate programs in uh, in uh, in the Middle East, which to me, you know, like this this little guy from Maracaibo ends up, ends up in you know in the Middle East. Uh, but it's been a fantastic journey. I, I mean, I, I I I of course I speak with nostalgia about my years as a journalist, and I continue to to do a lot of journalism. I continue to write. I actually write occasionally to El Clarín there in Argentina and to the newspaper. Sally, I don't write a lot more in, in Venezuela because I can. I don't want to put in, in, in danger my family who's in Venezuela. Uh, but I write a lot in other places. We created a, a radio station here in Qatar in Spanish, the first Spanish and Portuguese speaking radio station in the Middle East. And it's, you know, free, uh, free to air. Uh, you know, it's not just online. I tell people there, you know, how did you get that? This is, oh, no, we put together a project with a Qatari here, um, who's a very um, a progressive forward looking guy who thought that the diaspora, the Hispanic and Latino diaspora and the Luso diaspora, because that is Portuguese is also very important, deserve a, a radio. And, and, and now we're, we're almost, we're one year and two months old. And that's another interesting challenge. So there's, it's, it's been a very interesting journey, Pablo, very interesting journey, but it, it, it's been a lot of accidental stuff happening rather than me planning being here. <laughs> I hear you. And, and so, so for those who might not be entirely familiar with Venezuelan geography, could you tell people a little bit about your, your hometown, Maracaibo? I mean, where it sits in Venezuela, how big <laughs> it is? I mean, it's, it's a big metropolis, a small town, I mean, yeah, I actually, it's the second city in Venezuela, you know, but it's not that well known. It used to be much known. Um, it used to actually be the Sulia state, where Maracaibo is the capital of Sulia state. Sulia state is very similar to Texas. It's in the um, uh, north um, northwest of, of Venezuela. It's in the border from with Colombia. Um, we're literally like uh, an hour and a half, two hours from, from Colombia, depending, you know, an hour or something if you go uh, for a certain route. From Colombia, um, it's the second city. It's a very. It was built in um, uh, Maracaibo. Actually, means in the indigenous language the the land of the of the snakes of the cascabels of the uh, serpents, um, because that's what it means. Because apparently, when the Spanish arrived there, it was it, it, they they asked the people where to go and where to get water. And in Maracaibo, there was a lot of well water. And, and but there was because of that there was a lot of snakes and the indigenous people um, uh, 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 call it the the land of the of the snakes Maracaibo you know and, and funny enough I mean related to that I mean as all Latin Americans are very mixed my 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 from the side of my mother my grandmother was um, uh, indigenous well comes from the indigenous from the um, uh, people, there's two, the, the big Guajiro group, which is not really Guajiro, it's Guayu and Paraujano. We come from the Paraujano, from the side of my grandfather's side, and uh, there were also fishers, uh, like the Paraujanos are the, the fishers, the Guayu are the hunters, uh, land uh, land uh, gatherers, but the Guayu is there. And then uh, a mixture of, of, even even Jewish, we, we have uh, one of my 
a great grandfather was Jewish and <laughs> came into the picture. So this, you know, cosmopolitan thing that you get in Latin America, which is very mixed in all sense. My father's side is is uh, comes from a black family. Actually, we know because my one of my brothers did the research. We're not Lugo. Um, the thing is, the own the owner of the land and the slaves, which is was normally what they call a bastard son. So it was somebody who can who couldn't inherit land in Spain because they were a bastard son of somebody, of an aristocrat. So when they arrived to the Americas, they were given land, but but when they were asked their own name, they will say Lugo from the region of Galicia. But then he will go to put this name to the slaves. So the slaves uh, name all of the of the of the slaves in that area. This is this the region of Encontrados, Bobures in the south of the Lake Maracaibo, and uh, were very black people like my great grandfathers and, and you know were um, uh, black people. So, so there's a whole mixture there of the family history that leads. So if, if you go further, it's, it's getting to Adoha is really an amazing trajectory to somebody who's, uh, who's coming from those sides, but it's been an amazing one. I won't change anything uh, uh, on that side, but, but it's uh, amazing things. Yeah, I was, I was gonna, that's why I asked, I mean, because it is, it is quite a trajectory by way of Scotland and England, right? Uh, yes, uh, yes. Which is also, I mean, Scotland is, is quite different from Venezuela and also from... Yeah, actually, actually my, my friends in Britain used to joke because every time they saw me, I had a new job and it was constantly going north. So I went like, you know, London, Liverpool, you know, and then went to Scotland, and then I started going south, back to Leeds, and then out to Doha. So, <laughs> so from north to south, you know. But it's, it's you know, it's the life of the, of the diaspora, you know, you, you don't, you know, once you leave your hometown, you, you basically really don't feel an attachment. You, you know, I, I'm very grateful to the UK, it gave me a lot, my three, two of my three kids were born in the UK. Uh, also funny story, you know, one of my sons, was born in Scotland, but lives in England, and my and my son who was born in England lives in Scotland. <laughs> so that's a completely different story. And uh, and and my kid who was born in Venezuela and lived in Scotland now lives in Berlin. So uh, the life of of uh, <laughs> the intrinsic life of uh, of the diaspora and and the Latino community, but we all I mean one of the things I think I made sure with the kids is that they conserve a lot of uh, roots in terms of the Latino identity and they eat arepa they love uh, you know Latino food or you know they they dance you know my oldest son is 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 uh, in Berlin and he's going out and dancing south on the weekends, you know, and and with us, and he speaks English with a strong Scottish accent. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, I mean, Berlin is a very cosmopolitan city, so I'm sure you can find excellent Venezuela food there. I remember yeah, yeah. great arepas uh, in a food truck in Berlin, uh, in the, in the um, Marshall's, uh, the, the flea market. Um, I can't remember another location, but it was a great arena. Yeah. Completely different story. So, but Hayo, I mean, you you are very far from um, where you grew up, geographically speaking. Yet your research has remained, in part at least, strongly focused on Latin America, right? Yeah. Um. Um. How 
how so how do you come to choose your research projects and how much are, have they had they been influenced by your history and and all is all of this migration yeah well you know obviously you 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 talk about what you know I mean, most of us try to talk about what we actually know about. <laughs> you know, I know some people talk about things they don't really know, but at least I try to talk. But I, so my experience was a journalist. I, I you know, in a way, I, I, in, in the UK, they had this term called academics. I don't know if you have it in the United States. And these people who went from, well, in the UK, they use a lot of this term academics, which is uh, people who went from journalism into academia. And uh, which in the UK is, is, is a lot the case of a lot of journalists who, who work, let's say, BBC or Channel 4, and they end up all the times of the Guardian, they end up working in, in academia. So I was an academic in that sense. You know, I went from, from being a journalist without really planning into this thing of teaching and research. And, uh, and I started seeing that people were interested to know um, about, uh, about what to to. to about the things you know so for example in sterling i met this um really good scholar good friend of mine who just passed away very recently brian mcnair and mm -hmm. uh and and, I, and brian wrote a lot of, and so i started talking about with brian a lot <clears throat> about um you know his work and i said well you know that might be the case in the uk but that's not the case in the newspapers at work or in the radio stations that work in latin america the type this type of cultural um, so he started listening to me, and then I started talking to other people like um, Stuart Allen, who also written about news cultures. And, and what I was bringing into the discussion was the fact that I actually lived the process. You know, I had done, without knowing it, I had done my ethnographic work by myself. And although things changed, a lot of those cultures were still very prevalent. You know, why, you know, when I started looking, I, I started looking back in the 19, in, in, in 2001 or two, with a grant of Toda of the Toda Institute of Japan, um, and we we start looking at uh, at coverage of uh, asylum seekers and racism and why why certain journalists in the UK from like they say the Daily Mail or the Daily Express were uh, so overtly racist in the narratives and why even when they hire let's say black people or or Asian people into the newsroom and by Asian in the UK you mean uh, Indian uh, people from the Indian subcontinent in Pakistan, etc. Why they even these people who they hired, who were from this community, you know, why they continue this narrative? And then we start understanding about, for example, that the organizational culture was far more powerful than the identity of the individual, and uh, and I could relate to that because when I when I when I went to work in my first newspaper, which was a tabloid. Uh, back in Maracaibo, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was called the, 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 the uh, La Columna. Um, I realized that I went with all these ideal, romantic ideas about what, what, what I was going to do as a journalist. And when I arrived there, you know, before I blink, I was doing exactly the opposite of what I thought I was going to do. I, 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 there were things I said, I'm never going to do this when I work as a journalist. And it was nobody was really pressuring me and nobody was telling me, oh, you need to write it this way, although there was some of that. But it was the peer pressure of the culture of the need of being accepted and assimilated into the organization that play a form. And I thought, you know, reflecting on that years later as an academic, say, I'm going to write this. And I'm going to see what other people say about this. And I started finding academics who wrote about that. Uh, and then um, and starting to link, you know, one of the advantages I had had in my research is that 
uh, I, when I talk to editors of newspapers, for example, when I'm doing my research on, on now on poverty, for example, um, they listen. And one of the reasons they listen is because they see me as one of them, of, even though I've been out of the academia. So, uh, you know, I know the problems. I, I know you, you can't, you know, there's a lot of people who rush to blame journalists for a bad job. You know, I, I was doing some elements, uh, some research in years ago in, in a particular area, and there were a lot of the, uh, in this case, scientists saying, oh, all the journalists are rubbish. They don't know what they're writing and blah, blah, blah. And why do they have to rush this headline? And I would say, well, because you don't understand the dynamics of the news. He's trying to sell his paper that day. He's trying to get somebody to pay for his salary. You know, you know? So if he, he if this if it's completely accurate to what you want him to say as a scientist, it's just not going to be published because the, his editor is not going to see any newsworthiness in the story. And and that um, and I think that that was a great to me that was a great breakthrough uh, in understanding and being able to bridge between the academic, uh, because the, the problem is on the other side too. You know, I used to work with with uh, with uh, uh, publishers all the time, with editors all the time. Even now in Doha, I've been meeting with some of the newspapers who want to improve their coverage in general. And they say, oh, but you know, the academics don't write anything that is relevant to us. And, they say, and I said, that's rubbish, that's not true. What do you want to know about? This thing, and I gave them two or three papers. Oh, but this is not too convoluted. And I say, hang on a minute. You know, politicians read the papers that are produced by political scientists. And, and social services read the papers written by sociologists. Why can't the media read? Ah, because it's critical to you. And you don't like to look, you like to criticize, but if you really want to change it, improve the media landscape, you have to read criticism against you. And, and something I'm going to tell you, and I said this to an editor back in London once, I said, the, the academics are not your enemy. They're not your enemy. If you read in between lines, what they're basically trying to do is ways of saving your industry. You know, it's it's not the academics who. If you read pay, if you read this book, for example, of of John, uh, Jim Hill, Jim uh, Jim Hall in 2020, you know, in in 2000, 20 years ago, he was telling the newspapers, you you you're not seeing the Craigslist here. You're going to miss the opportunity of making money. All this thing classifieds. You needed to do it quickly. You need to do it online and free so you can conserve and keep that market and look for monetization in different ways. He was writing this 20 years ago. None of the newspapers put attention. And that's one of the things that I think we need to, it's not only a job of academia because it already puts in academia the weight of, oh, you need to, to create greater impact. You need to put forward your work, make it more accessible. No, it's, it, I, I, I respond to that. Um, news, news, news media, the news media industry needs to listen more too. It's a two-way street. We have to encounter in the middle. Uh, you know, uh, They need us as much as we need them in, in a way. Our, our, our job can be meaningful if we change the way journalists. So years ago, this is even before, um, before, um, before uh, Doha. But years ago, my work about poverty was, you know, I one of the things I did was when uh, I, I got I got the publisher to give me ten or fifteen copies of my own books for free, and I went to London and I gave it to several journalists as a gift, you know, and and I, I wrote that book. This is uh, blaming the victim and how the media news media covers poverty, and I wrote that book purposely, deliberately. I wrote it very accessible in a way that read almost as a novel. 
and 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 we had all these pressures. It, this was a challenge because you know in Britain we have all this pressure of the research um, um, uh, assessment exercise, which is like this uh, thing that every five, four, five years you're evaluated for your academic work. So there's a lot of pressure to buy, to write and publish in strictly academic terms because that's the one that gets greater greater uh, um, uh, uh, points in the system, and you want to get points so you can get you know additional resources. Uh, but on delivery, what I did was I wrote it in a very accessible way, that book. So the book hasn't uh, really penetrated academia in that way, but it has a, a penetrated a lot. The, because once they did a whole program about the book in, for example, in Al Jazeera. And, 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 and this was things, this is, this was things that it was because you made. So I think it's a two-way street. We have to make our work more um, uh, accessible. And by accessible, not necessarily in the writing only, but also in the way how you know how to get this work to them. So if we, if we if if I write a book normally from a research project, I normally try to write also a briefing of the of that book to give it to people who are in the industry. But also there's a there must be an interest from the industry to come and listen to and open to listen things and not listen to criticism. Because I repeat, the criticism from the academia is not the enemy of the media. You know, um, sadly, many see it that way. You know, the sadly the New York Times, for example, had got fed up of people writing books about the New York Times. And uh, they're now very close to, you know, trying to charge people for using um, you know, paragraphs, etc., of the of the newspaper. So they have the lawyers there, etc. I'm I'm assuming that it's because they want to uh, dissuade people from from research. But but I think that's a big mistake because I don't think any of the academics. I, I know that a couple of radical academics who will hate the New York Times and want it to disappear. But the majority don't. The majority want actually the New York Times to succeed. They just they want better journalism from the New York Times, from the Boston Globe, from the Washington Post, from CNN. You know. Uh, and, and, and to that, they have to be open. I'm, I'm not talking, of course, certain media, Alex Jones or Fox News, that's out of anything. But even one of the first papers I wrote was about Fox News, was about Fox News, how was Fox News changing the terms of debate? And, and uh, now I didn't necessarily want, uh, uh, my criticism was, wasn't just criticism for the sake of it to Fox News. It's just that I think, you know, the news should play a much, uh, a, a much, um, a beneficiary role in society. Okay, so so that's super interesting. I have two two different kind of threads of follow up questions. One, and I, I and I say both, and then you can pick up whichever or both you you want. Uh -huh. to. So the the first one is now you have had the opportunity to work and do research in three different continents. Um, so I was wondering whether you have seen sort of that the reception of uh, in, in the journalism community to the work that academics do varies, you know, in a place like Venezuela versus, you know, in Europe versus in the Arab Peninsula. That's number one. Number two is uh, what is the role that social media might play into this? Because I think a lot of, you know, uh, there, there tends to be um, conversations that include academics and journalists on social media. Um, so, you know, some, many don't, but some do. So I wonder where you think that, you know, participating in social media, in particular on Twitter, uh, might be sort of having an effect 
on the ability of each side to listen to the other. And I don't yeah. know, I'm say yeah, yeah. I, I mean, actually, I think both questions are really related. I, I think uh, I will start with the first one, and and I'll see. And, and I think it's related to the second one in a way. You know, um, I'm not going to talk about three continents. I'm actually going to talk about different academic cultures, and and I find very different cultures. Um, talking about um, uh, Philip Schlesinger, who I mentioned. Um, uh, some years, many years ago, when I was still there, you know, 2004, 2003, he gave me an article from an academic in Spain and asked me if I could translate it into Spanish. And, and Philip has done a remarkable job in bridging, way before anybody, in bridging between Latin Americans and, uh, and uh, Latin Americans and, and scholars and the rest of the world. He was the first one probably to translate um, uh, Jesus Martin Barbero into English. He brought uh, Garcia Canclini, um, you know, in, in Sterling, when people, when uh, even before I think uh, uh, Consumidores in Ciudadanos was published. And so, so uh, you know, the hybrid, hybrid culture, he had these first debates with, with Canclini about the hybrid cultures and, and things like that. So um, uh, there are very different, uh, and they don't talk to each other. Uh, they don't talk to each other, uh, definitely, um, or, or they talk very little to each other. And that was my experience. One of the things I found uh, some years uh, ago, we did um, uh, a special issue, Andres Cañizales in the University of Catholic Andres organized a special edition, a special book on, uh, Antonio, on the contributions of Professor Antonio Pasquale, who passed away recently. Got a, you know, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and I, I had to write one of the essays of the book. And I started the essay saying that the book Fosquali, uh, Communication Cultura, came a year before uh, um, Raymond, Aaron, uh, Raymond um, uh, book on communication. And in those years, um, uh, and, and, and honestly, the book of Pasquale is far more comprehensive with far more details about the same subject. But the book of Pasquale at the best have sold, I don't know, 5,000 copies probably. And, uh, and Raymond's book is probably in the millions. And uh, you know, the, the academia reflects the monopoly of knowledge or the oligopoly of knowledge created by resources. You know, if you are in a university well-resourced, even now that I, I switch from a British university to a US university, you can see the huge difference uh, of, of resources to do research, etc. cetera. Uh, so when I say that the academias don't talk to each other, it's not only in terms of the, of the language, you know, um, it's also in terms of the of the way they do research, the way they uh, approach research. And, and, I, and, I, and I'm not evaluating which is better or which is worse because I don't think it's, that's the point. And it's not definitely a point, um, you know, but, but it doesn't talk. People in uh, uh, so, uh, the endogamia, the, the closeness 
self-centered of academia is a sin of all the academias. No, I'm not saying here that the U.S. doesn't listen to the South. No, the South does. If you if you if you go to a conference of alike, and I love the people from alike, alike the Association of Latin American Communication Research. I try to go uh, as much as I can, um, and I keep in touch. They're doing now the one in Medellin, where in, where in, in a few days there's going to be November in Medellin, Colombia, uh, although online. And uh, but you rarely hear people from them, even when they're Latinos. You know, you know. I, I was surprised when I asked people, like in I don't know, Colombia, Venezuela, have you read this book of Silvio Weisberg? And Silvio is one of the, as you know, or, or Pablo's work. No, <laughs> no. How can you know? It's even in Spanish. You can't even say that that it's not there. So I'm not saying this is a sin only there, but I think there's a big problem that the academias do not talk to each other. And I that's why I said that the two questions were related because one of the great things of social media was the fact that it allows people to talk to each other and that it, it, it cuts horizontally uh, in a way we didn't have before. I mean, you know, uh, let's face it, if, if you, you had a, a, a journal like Opción from the University of Zulia where I, where I studied my first degree, and Opción is a great magazine, published are great stuff, and it's actually indexed in Q1, and it's been Q1 for years. Now ask how many people in, I don't know, Northwestern, how many people have heard of Opción? <laughs> Nobody, you know? And it's a great magazine, you know? It's funny because I, I, I saw some candidates in a job application we posed and, and, and I saw this candidate who actually had a huge numbers of uh, pieces publishing in journals Q1, you know? And I said, how can this guy so young get so many uh, journal publications in Q1 in so little time. And it's the guy had identified all these little journals across the world in Bangladesh, in Venezuela, in Bolivia, and they were all Q1, but there was this little, that nobody heard, so nobody sent articles there, you know? And they met the criteria that that uh, that they were in, in index, like in Reuters and Scopus in, in Q1. So they found obviously this system of publishing. So here we are all competing to get publishing journalism studies or in journalism or in journal quality communication or press and politics. And this guy went on the back and he publishes in all these little places, gets the same award because he gets a Q1, you know, and, and gets published. And I thought, oh God, that's smart. That's really smart, you know? Uh, but th that is because the academias don't work. And I found this phenomenon. I went to Pakistan some years ago uh, to do a series of lectures in, in uh, in, uh, in, Ikra, the, in Ikra University in, in Karachi. And uh, again, the same problem. They didn't even listen to what the people in India were writing. You know, and, and they were both writing in English. That, that, you know, they were both writing in English and they, they didn't know. So it was me, a guy from Venezuela who was in that time living in the UK, who came to Pakistan telling them that this guy in India is researching the same topic that he's doing. <laughs> and, and there you go. Um, so I think that's one of the things I have enjoyed the most is trying to help people to network, even if, if I'm not involved, you know, and most time I'm not involved in, in a way, you know, so, so I just put people together. I met, you know, um, I, I, not, not to take credit, but uh, my, my former uh, PhD um, uh, candidate student, uh, Scott um, Eldridge, who's now in, in Groningen, a professor at Groningen University in Holland. And, and, uh, and, uh, and I met this other guy from, from, uh, 
Miguel San, Miguel, um, uh, Miguel from uh, uh, the Ramon Lul University in Barcelona. And, and I noticed they were both working the same thing. And I said, man, you need to talk to each other. And they start talking and the book, that was three or four years ago, the book just came out, you know? And, uh, and uh, you know, I, 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 and I think we, we need, the, the, with social media, you know, we need to, to use it better. I mean, a lot of people use it more to promote themselves in the sense like, you know, how many, you know, to, to go to, I don't know, academic academics.abc or whatever to promote and, you know, part of their of their networking. That, that, but I think the networking has to happen more horizontally. I, I, I see I, I see that, um, you know, people like you, Pablo, with this center has, uh, are, are fundamental in this task of, of putting bringing people together, you know. One of the things I love was seeing, for example, Raisa Rivari, my old professor from the University of Surya, in the chat room and with mixing up and, you know, some of you asking me, who is this woman? He says, oh, she's a wonderful scholar that nobody heard of because everything she had published has been in Spanish and published by, I don't know, the University Press of Surya, which now disappeared and all the books are gone or something and, and would never digitalize because this was the time before, before digitalization. And, and uh, this, I think we need to do, uh, do more there, but I think that social media, the social platforms present a unique opportunity to this, uh, to do this cross-pollination and, pro and cross-collaboration between different people, you know, and I think this is, when people talk about, when James Curran and, um, and uh, Pac talked about de-westernizing media, you know, um, and that famous book that opened all this movement, uh, or, or now this whole movement of decolonizing media studies, uh, I always say it's a horizontal communication. You know, this is not getting rid of things. You know, I don't believe in getting rid of knowledge. You know, it's about adding, combining, enriching the knowledge that we have. And uh, Silvia Weisworth wrote a very good piece some two or three years ago on, on uh, about the function of Latin American studies in media studies and how it can help us challenge and question some of the global assumptions. You know, this is, as you know, this is a, uh, you know, you probably have experienced this when, when, when I talk about Venezuela and I, by mistake, make a realization, all oh, the journalism is like that because in Venezuela, like, oh, but that's in Venezuela. That doesn't happen in other, that don't generalize, don't universalize, that's in Venezuela. But then a colleague of mine from the UK said, oh, this is the way journalism does things because my study in London shows that, ah, oh, come on, like you can generalize, you know, that's universal. Not what I'm saying is universal. Anyway, I think we all, all, all of us needs to be less presumption uh, about our, the universality of the knowledge we generate and instead think of it as a more um, complementary um, elements of knowledge, like a puzzle that we're all going to put together, but it's never going to be completed and it's never going to be the whole picture. It's just going to be something that allows us in, insight into reality. And, you know, and, 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 and I think that's, that's the task, you know, the task to understand and in the past, I think it was too much about about uh, asking how this or that theory could explain this reality, and I think that uh, that now the question is is more about 
what type of theory we can derive from each one of these cases. And I think you can see that in many scholars. I mean, definitely you can see it, for example, with uh, Paolo Massini and, and, and Dan Halin, who started by trying to, 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 to define the world in this term of the media systems. And today we got a far more complex, far more rich, elaborated notion of media systems, and not only nationally, but even regionally with the work of uh, uh, Julieta Brambila, uh, uh, Mireya, uh, Mireya in Mexico, etc., and, and it's far more rich than we would have had if we had stayed with this notion of like how this big model explained this reality. Well, no, it's not like that. It's like what reality can you understand from the reality itself? And I think that's much more rich. So I think both. I think we we need to talk about different academias, but we also really need to think about these academias much more interlinked by the social media. Okay, now staying on the on the different academias so they all coexist um but some are richer than others some have um, a bit more centrality than others right yes. um and some of us myself included think that that's empowering empowering to everybody but how yes. can we help those at the center realize that they are impoverishing themselves, right? Because when, when, when you are the owner of, of, of the ball, so to speak, you want to score all the goals. <laughs> uh, and uh, you don't know what others to score goals against you. So, I mean, this is probably not the best metaphor, but, um, yeah, you know, what have you learned after so many years? I mean, because you're, you're not only a very accomplished scholar, but you are also uh, an academic entrepreneur. I mean, you have directed, created and directed programs in different parts of the world. And you are also an entrepreneur in industry. I mean, you started a radio, right? I mean, Spanish and Portuguese language radio in Doha, which is, you know, quite remarkable. So, so what have you learned from, from all of these sort of building structures of knowledge about how to, you know, you know bridge across these different cultures so that um, there is less of a center periphery, less of an asymmetry in terms of distribution of power. Okay. I mean, it's it's a it's a challenge, uh, you know. And you're absolutely right. You know, we we say like the song of uh, the Panamanian uh, singer, one of my favorites, uh, Ruben Blades. Why, why they disappear you? Because we're not this, we don't, we're not all equal, and, and and that metaphor really works because it's it's the it's the invisible knowledge there. And I think you're absolutely right. When you have invisible knowledge, then everybody's poorer. Uh, but I would I would dispute, however, that it's it's just because of resources, you know. Uh, because it's not only resources. Uh, for years, for for great part of the twenty years I've been in academia now, uh, for example, the Germans were invisible. Uh, it's only recent that you have people like uh, Thomas Hanich and other uh, starting to show up in the mainstream discussions. But they didn't even go to ICA or they didn't go to IMCR. You know, very few of them. Uh, they have their own, and and they are a very rich academia. I mean, believe me, they have lots of money for research. The Volkswagen research, they have lots of money. It's not a part of. They they haven't been. They've been more self marginalized than actually marginalized. You know, um, so yes, there's a there's an issue there, but it's not only an issue of resources. There's an issue of cultures of 
you know, the, the academic system systems is built in, in every country, in every society in specific way to reward certain things. For example, in the UK, you have this uh, 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 research assessment exercises that every five years, everybody is evaluated. The university gets money because of it or doesn't get money with it. So everybody's geared up to that. And it has worked for the Brits. You know, the Brits with far less resources than the US has probably the second academia in the world in terms of numbers of publications and copyrights, et cetera. So it's a very efficient way, but it's also a way that is, 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 is it gears off to people into, into getting particular resources. And you early asked me, you know, what led you to get in this or that area? Not every area I have explored in research has been for will. It's just areas that they were resources there and we apply to get them. And, you know, if, if you if you ask certain academic scholars, why did you do this work? It's because I got the grant, you know, and not, not necessarily because that was, you know, we, we can't be naive to say, you know, a lot of the best work I've done, I did it without money and, and all resources. It was just because that was really what I wanted to do. So I, uh, but it's not a lot of time you have. And the same in the UK, in the US, I mean, the US where you're chasing this golden goose uh, called tenure, you know, and, and you got all these people as a John said, I mean, I don't have to tell you stories about that. So, so it's not only about money and about resources that the academia, it's also the system itself that is built in a way that people are channeled to certain particular things. And that means they don't look to the sides, you know, this idea of the, of the old academics of the middle ages, the universities in that monastery in which you just look for knowledge and you talk and learn languages, but also you got this guy like, you know, the Renaissance, like Da Vinci, who's, who knows about engineering, music, painting, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can't afford that anymore. You can barely read. I haven't read a novel in probably eight years or 10 years, you know, uh, because I have to read all this other stuff that I have to teach or research. So the, it's the system itself is, to, is built for that. But also there, the other thing is there's, a, there's two issues. There's an issue, I think, in the center, the, and, the, and there's an issue in the periphery. In the center, there's an issue of um, humbleness, of, uh, of uh, knowing that you don't know everything, that just because you, um, that you are um, uh, a cited scholar um, who uh, gives a talk doesn't mean that you know things. It only means that you are, you've been lucky and privileged to do a great job. I love academia. Uh, and to, to, you know, as I say, the, as I was describing to my wife once, what do I do? And says, I basically get paid to read, which I would turn for free anyway. Um, but we, I think in the center, in the periphery, we, that we're in this university, Europeans, we need more, much more humbleness and understand that the other knowledge is very valuable and that we should listen, but really listen. No, not, not just quote and understand, but actually listen. And, and, and people will be amazed about, you know, I saw a book some years ago, and I'm not gonna mention the book or the scholar because he's, 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 a, he's a very nice guy and, and he did it on purpose. But the book had the same title that the book of, a, of, a, of an academic in, in, in Latin America who's written this, basically the same book 10 years before and not a single citation. And I am 100% sure that this academic, I'll tell you the name afterwards of the record, but don't want to, you know, get it here. But I'm sure that the academic who, who did this book in the, in, in, he did not know about even the existence of the other, of the other academic. 
you know, and uh, he didn't really realize that. He, and there was probably not in his mind that he could go to Google Scholar and look and, and at that Google Scholar. So he looks to all the, you know, um, all, all these things. And I, mean, I was amazed when I was working with my book on poverty because one of the chapters co-authored by my then um, uh, PhD students, Patrick Malaulu, who's a Nigerian, and he introduced me to all this wonderful literature of scholars in, in Nigeria who had written about lots of stuff, which you didn't get in any of the big journals. I mean, Herman Hesman, uh, Wasserman in South Africa, Cape Town University had done a brilliant job with his journal of uh, the Journal of African Studies and he got funding so the journal is more accessible to scholars and he gets teams to people to help scholars uh, because we not all scholars write in the American Psychological Association style and none of them are used to writing the science but they still have very, we in our journal, um, the Journal of Applied Journalism and Media Studies, Leon Barco, who's the editor, I'm the deputy editor. Um, we published, for example, the first ever article about journalism in Haiti. And we realized when we published that article, which was a struggle because it was, a, 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 you know, a, to be an academic in Haiti, and this was just after the, the, the fall of Duvalier, of um, Aristide, of Jean-Bertrand Aristide, um, to write this piece, the guy was like, literally driving a taxi and then going to do his classes because that's the only way he could make ends meet. And so we we asked, we assigned him an editor to help him and he managed to publish. And it's a brilliant article. It's one of the most cited articles of our journal because nobody else, anybody who has to write anything about Haiti has to reference that article because it was like the first one to be published in English in that term. And I think that is part of the humbleness. And I, I think this is happening, you know, in, uh, in, in a way, you know, I think the journals we, for example, in my journal, and I'm not really trying to promote my journal, but it's something that Leon is, is Leon has stated have done it brilliantly. Uh, Leon is from Sweden, but he managed, he secured that at least half of our journal uh, editorial board, more than half actually now, is women, and uh, and 70% are people from the global south. And this is a journal that is now, you know, widely um, indexed, very well indexed. It's Q2, Q1 in some cases, and and this this is this was a conscious decision. And I think journals all over the world need to start looking without losing quality, without compromising quality. I think they need to give voices to people and create mechanisms to allow people to to participate. But I think there's also an issue of the of the global south, and the issue of the global south is um, access to resources. You know. And uh, to, good, to do good research, you do need research, uh, resources. And there's no other way around that. You know, if you want to do an ethnographic or survey or semi-stressed interviews, you're gonna have to need to resources. And it's amazing how much they do with very little in general. Um, uh, but I think there's an issue there, there's resources. I mean, how many academics can afford next year to go to um, Denver, uh, to the ICA? You know, and, and I'm not even talking about the hotel and the trip. I'm talking about the two, three hundred dollars that you have to pay for the research. And the ICA has, on all fairness, lots of scholarships. People donate money for that, etc. But it's the structure itself; it's just not accessible. Now, this is considered the world top forum for media scholars and communication. But I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's not. I'm sorry, it's like the baseball, like. The, the US likes to call the World Series. 
Sorry, it's the only baseball team that plays from the U.S. They used to have the Blue Jays who used to be based in Canada, but that's no longer the case. So no, sorry. So the so I'm sorry. ICA is not the forum. So and and I go to ICA and I participate because I learn. I think they're brilliant. Work. So I'm not demeriting the importance of the work because, as I said earlier, this is not about de-Westernizing and decolonizing. It's not about subtracting. It's about adding, adding knowledge uh, to enrich. Uh, all of us. And so what we need to do is to look to ways for people who can participate. And I think this, the, ble the, the mixed blessing of COVID-19, which has been a terrible and damaging um, uh, event for all the academia and humanity as such, but for, for academia where a lot of people are, are going to uh, lose their jobs or in danger of losing their jobs. It's still, but one of the very few things that has happened is that oblige us to reconsider the way we interact with others, to do this type of events that you're doing, um, in which you know, um, in which you actually use technologies, social platforms to include, to be more inclusive, uh, and I think that's something that the ICA and MCR they, they're doing. Of course, their event uh, uh, more inclusively, but why don't have you know free forums or they have the regional chapters and all that and i i'm very conscious and aware of all the really good efforts but i'm saying as a structure as a center we think that both we have to be more humble in the center and include myself as now member of this uh, family in the in the north in the global north, although i'm in the global south but i'm part of a u.s university um, and i'm talking about resources but also to think of ways in which we can help our sisters and brothers in the global south to overcome the limitations and the obstacles that will allow them to engage and participate more actively in the sharing of knowledge uh, and that includes language etc and it's funny because a lot of the a lot of the journals now in the south um, uh, are having you know the editions are in different languages, which is I think it's a great. There's still a European language, but it's great. I, you know, I, I found out years ago about the Journal of Brazilian Journalism Research, uh, which is a great journal, very well. But I only found it out because Stuart Allen published an article there, and um, and, uh, and 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 I, I I'm a literary guy. I didn't know about this journal. You know, so I'm not I'm not excusing. I'm not saying this this is a sin of my. Northern colleagues, I am part of that problem. I'm part of that problem, and that's why I'm, I'm still reflecting that. I think we, as a as a group, as a whole, including myself, need to think, uh, be more more humble, and also think about ways in which we can engage these people outside better. All right, I couldn't think of a better way to end this great conversation, Jairo. This has been super enlightening, super interesting. Um, thank you for your time. And I invite everybody to tune in uh, again uh, next week for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you very much. Thank you. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.